Prem Shikahoshi Krishna Chaitanya, Prabhu Nichananda, Shiroit Gadadhar Shivasadi Gora Bhaktavinda Kija, Shishi Radha Krishna Gogopina, Shankunda Radha Kundigiri Govardhan Kija, Vrindavan Dhamma Kija, Matur Dhamma Kija, Navadri Mayapur Dhamma Kija, Javanath Puri Dhamma Kija, Ganga Maya Juna Devi Kija, Bhakti Devi Kija, Tulsi Maharani Kija, Samaveta Bhaktavinda Kija, Gora Premananda. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Sri Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Vadaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale. Sri Mati Bhakti Vedanta Swami Niti Namine Namaste Saraswati Deva. Gauravani Pachaya Nivasesis and Nivali Paskajade Sataya. Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Utah, Padakamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavamscha, Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana, Raganatam Vitam Sam Sajivam, Sadhuetam Sadhvadutam, Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam, Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana, Ravita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha, Panchkapa Tribishaka Bismillavatam, Titanam Pavanavio Vaishnavavim. Jai Jai Shri Chaitanya Jai Nityananda Jai Shri Chaitanya Jai Nityananda Jai Jai Shri Chaitanya Jai Nityananda Jai Jai Shri Chaitanya Jai Nityananda April 19, 2017, New Vrindavan, West Virginia, and we're reading from Sri Chaitanya Charitamrita Adi Lila, text 23 and 24, and 22 is on the board. In the transcendental world, Vaishya sits Narayana, Lord Narayana, Nama, of the name. Shad Aishvarya of six kinds of opulences Purna full Lakshmi Kanta the husband of the goddess of opulence Bhagavan the supreme personality of Godhead translation by Shiva Prabhupada Lord Narayana who dominates the transcendental world is full in six opulences he is the personality of Godhead, the Lord of the Goddess of Fortune. Text 24. Veda Bhagavata Upanishad Agama Purna Tattva Yanare Kahe Nahi Yanara Sama. The person, translation and purport. The personality of Godhead is he who is described as the absolute whole in the Vedas, Bhagavatam, Upanishads, and other transcendental literatures. No one is equal to him. Purport. There are innumerable authoritative statements in the Vedas regarding the personal feature of the absolute truth. Some of them are as follows. So here the idea is that Narayana is the, that Lord Chaitanya is Narayana. 
Narayana is the Supreme Lord, and also the person Narayana is not only the Supreme Lord as far as all other Ishwaras, all other lords, but also supreme among all of the manifestations of God, in other words, uh, Paramatma and Brahman. So therefore, Srila Prabhupada is saying that we are establishing the personal feature of the Lord as supreme, and he's going to quote five uh, different sources. Number one, from the Rik Samhita 122.20, Tad Vishnu Paramam Padam Sada Apasthanti Suraya Diviva Chaksha Atitam. Translation of that, the personality of Godhead Vishnu is the absolute truth, whose lotus feet all the demigods are always eager to see. Like the sun god, he pervades everything by the rays of his energy. He appears impersonal to imperfect eyes. Second quote. From the Narayana Tarva Shira Upanishad 1 to 2. Narayanad Eva Samut Padyante Narayanat Parvartante Narayane Kaliyate Yante Ate Nicho Narayana Narayana Eva Dam Sarvam Yadbutam Yachchabhayam Shudho Deva Eko Narayano Na Dvityo Sti Kashtit. Translation of that. It is from Narayana only that everything is generated, by him only that everything is maintained, and in him only that everything is annihilated. Therefore, Narayana is eternally existing. Everything that exists now or will be created in the future is nothing but Narayana, who is the unadulterated deity. There is only Narayana and nothing else. Third reference. From the Narayana Upanishad 1.4, Yata Prasuta Jagata Prasuti. Translation of that. Narayana is the source from whom all the universes emanate. Fourth quote. Prabhupada has numbered. Yeah. From the Hara Shirsha Pancharatra, Paramatma Hariya Devaha. Translation of that. Hari is the Supreme Lord. Fifth quote. From the Srimad Bhagavatam 11.3.34-35 Narayana Bidanasya Brahmana Paramatmana Nishtam Artata Novaktum Yuyam Hi Brahmavittama Translation of that. O best of the Brahmanas, please tell us of the position of Narayana who is known as Brahman and Paramatma. And this is probably from two verses from the Bhagavatam. This is the second one. Stitchu bhava pralaya hetur ahetur astya yat swapna jagara shishuktishu sadvahishcha dehendriyashu ridayani charantiyena sanjivitani taravehi param narendra. Translation of that. O king, know him who is causeless and yet is the cause of creation, maintenance, and annihilation. He exists in the three states of consciousness, namely waking, dreaming, and deep sleep, as well as beyond them. He enlivens the body, the senses, the breath of life, and the heart, and thus they move. Know him to be the Supreme. That last verse is particularly beautiful, isn't it? Yes. Good. I recall one time giving a class on that verse. So I was trying to decide, should I give a class to in the same day? Should I speak on that verse quoted in the purport? And I decided instead to speak primarily on text 23. Uh, 
Lord Narayana, who dominates the transcendental world, is full in the six opulence, opulences. He is the personality of Godhead, the Lord of the Goddess of Fortune. And the word for word, Lakshmi Kanta, is translated as the husband of the Goddess of Opulence. So he has all six opulences in full porna, and he is the Lord of the Goddess of Opulences. So why is this mentioned? Because opulences are symptomatic of a person. Impersonal forces don't have opulences. Isn't that correct? I don't have any, any opulences. <laughs> and just some force that has no opulence. I remember when I was first determined to join the Hare Krishna movement, when I came home um, at the end of my first semester as an undergraduate, as a freshman. And I had spent a couple weeks in a clandestine way at the temple in Chicago. And I came home and I told my parents at the end of the next semester, when I finish the year, I'm going to move into the temple in Chicago. And my, my father was very supportive immediately. My mother was not very supportive. <laughs> she was unsupportive. <laughs> she was aggressive. She was disturbed. And she decided that she wanted to dissuade me by any mean, any legitimate means. She didn't try to have me deprogrammed, thankfully. So while I was at college in my, my second semester, she sent a rabbi to talk to me about how I shouldn't surrender to Krishna. And he was trying to convince me that God was actually impersonal. So that didn't work very well. I mean, perhaps there might have been other things he could have said that would have dissuaded me, but that one wasn't, wasn't working. And so... I remember that uh, we were eating lunch together and I said to him, but God must be the most beautiful. And he, he just had no reply to that. How could an impersonal force be beautiful? He was just kind of stuck. I had a, a similar but different conversation that same semester with one of my professors. So we were supposed to write a poem in our literature and creative writing class about truth and in my poem I wrote that truth is beautiful and the professor objected and he said there's many true things that are ugly crime is true but it's ugly you know garbage is true but it's ugly and so forth and so on and I said no what's absolutely true is always beautiful even things that appear ugly are actually part of a beautiful plan. You know, the death and decay of material bodies is also the foundation for life and growth, isn't it? There's a cycle which decaying uh, trees and leaves and bug bodies and so forth. We may see the dead body and feel disgust, but it becomes the ground for new, for new growth, for new life. So everything is, is beautiful, and even the so-called uh, suffering in this world it is part of a cycle of justice. It is part of a, a cycle of uh, balance and harmony. And therefore it is also beautiful. If sinful things were not met with some sort of punishment, we would not think that was very beautiful. In fact, we would think that was ugly. So ultimately, truth is beautiful. And here it's described that the absolute truth has six opulences. Not just, not no opulences, not no potencies, and not just one opulence, but six, and the six in full. Shat Aishwarya Purnam. 
that they are complete. Uh, and complete, of course, we hear from the uh, Ishopanishad. When I visited the St. James School in London, the students came up to me and said, would you like to hear us chant the perfect verse? So I was intrigued. And I said, yes, please chant the perfect verse. So the students there are all trained to chant Sanskrit. Uh, my pronunciation in this life will never be equal to theirs. So they're 10, 11, 12 years old, and they're chanting the Sanskrit. They sound like ancient Vedic sages from another yuga, right? or from another planet or something like that. You, you really feel like all the, you've been transported to Satya or Treta Yuga or one of the planets of the Rishis. Anyway, so they were chanting the first mantra of the Ishopanishad. And I asked them, why do you call this the perfect mantra? They said, because it describes how everything is perfect. Om Purnam Adha Purnam Idam Purnar Purnar Udhachite Purnasya Purnam Adaya Purnam Eva Visishite. This is complete, if we want to give a more literal translation, this is complete, that is complete. From the complete, the complete comes. If you take the complete away from the complete, still the complete remains. And we know that one of the liberations that one can get, one of the five kinds of liberations, is to have the same what as the Lord? Well, in this context of this verse, the same what? Warm. The same opulences. You can have the same opulences as the Lord. Think about that for a minute. It's one of the five kinds of liberation. You can have the same opulences as the Lord. How does that happen? If I give you all of my opulences, then I don't have any left, right? If you have equal opulences with I've given you, then I'm empty. And Prabhupada talks about these bogus gurus who initiate their disciples through some kind of shaktipat. I witnessed that uh, many years ago in Trinidad. <laughs> that was very interesting. <laughs> the devotees invited me. They said, we would like you to preach at a Janmastami festival, not Iskan, by some other Hindu group. So I went there and they had deities of Shiva, Durga, and Krishna, baby Krishna, but it was a very odd deity. I mean, Krishna looked very peculiar, and I was like, oh, why are they doing this? And then there was this uh, lady guru dressed in, in saffron and all these other uh, bhaktas, and they were all doing this strange voodoo-ish dance. You know, these Caribbean islands, sometimes they bring in things from some of these uh, tribal religions. So they're chanting Vedic mantras and they're doing this strange voodoo dance and going into some sort of strange trance. And she's touching everyone on their heads, at which time they start kind of writhing and then they collapse on the ground. And the devotees who had brought me there kept apologizing to me. They said, oh, we're so sorry, we're so sorry, we didn't mean to have you see some tantric voodoo ritual. And I said, no, no, it, it's nice. It's like a National Geographic movie. I'll go back and tell my Google students about it. <laughs> so, and, and after this uh, guru gave the disciples her shakti, she didn't have any. You know, she was giving everybody shakti and they were going, Ooh! and then she collapsed. And they said, oh, we'll be several days before she can uh, function again because she's given them all of her energy. So we may think that God is like that, you know, when he gives the liberated souls his opulences, then he kind of collapses. 
I don't have any opulences anymore. No material things are like that. Right? If I have my computer on battery and it's charging your phone and it's charging your this, then its own battery is, is depleted. And we have this experience ourselves. You know, if I, I'm doing this and I'm doing that, and then I become depleted. I have to eat, I have to sleep, isn't it? Right? I, I run out of energy. So how is it that Lord Narayana, he's Purna, right? Shadashvaya Purna, he's full in six opulences and he can give an unlimited number of jivas the liberation of having equal opulences and he's still full. Infinity minus infinity is infinity. Of course it is also interesting, and we'll get to this again at the end, that he's giving people equal opulences. In this world, we would not do that. This world is permeated by envy. So if I have something nice, I have a nice car, I'm happy if you have a nice car, as long as it's not quite as nice as my car. Your spouse can be beautiful, but not as beautiful as mine. Mine has to be a little bit more beautiful or a little bit more qualified, I have to have at least a little bit more money. Isn't it? We don't like it when someone has equal. One of my students uh, in Gurukula was from Nepal, and one day he gave me a beautiful multicolored cheddar. He said, my mother has sent this to you from Nepal. So I was very proud. Oh, I am such a wonderful Gurukula teacher. My students love me so much. They bring me this beautiful Nepali multicolored cheddar. And I very proudly wore it to the temple the next morning for Mangalartik. And I looked around, and every other lady in the temple had an identical chatter. <laughs> At which point I wasn't very happy anymore. And I thought, why am I not happy? Well, because of envy. Of course, I think women are particularly like this with clothes. So this kind of envy. So Krishna is not envious. He's not saying, I have six opulences in full, and you can have something less than that. No, he's willing to share, to the point that he's willing to give that liberation to anyone who seeks it. And these opulences show he's a person. Only a person can be the most beautiful, the most strong, the most wealthy, the most knowledgeable, the most famous, the most renounced. These cannot apply to an imperson. And these opulences are very attractive. One of the meanings of Krishna is he who is the word karsh means to attract, that he is the most attractive. Of course, the fact that the Supreme is the most attractive is the essence of bhakti yoga. The mystic yogis try to control their mind and senses through the mechanics of asana and pranayama and dhyana, which can be successful after a very long time. And even then there's some danger because they're controlling them mechanically. You know, if you take an animal and you restrain it with a fence, sometimes the animal is able to open the fence. Yes, you've seen this? You can go on the internet and, you know, Google animals opening fences. And you'll find, you know, some cows and some monkeys, and they, they figure out, push the lever like this, yes? And they get out. 
This is explained with the uh, story, I think, of Rishabdev. It's asked, why did Rishabdev not exhibit his mystic powers? And the answer is that after you capture a wild animal, you don't trust it. You figure it will try to escape. So if the yogi conquers his mind and senses, he doesn't trust them, that they can escape. And we have so many examples of people who controlled their mind and senses mechanically. And later on, there was some difficulty. Right? Like Vishwamitha. He just heard some, something that sounded like jewelry jingling. And he thought, jewelry jingling. Maybe it's a woman. And he comes out of his trance and then he forgets all of his yoga practice for some time. So we're not trying to do it like that. The mystic yogis tried to do it by mechanically controlling the life airs. I mean, there's some pleasure in that, right? I know I've experienced pleasure doing like a near-jaw fasting and you're like, yes! I've gone without food, without water, without sleep. I am powerful. Do you ever feel like that? That's the happiness of the mystic yogis, Prabhupada says. And then the jnanis, they try to control their senses uh, through philosophy. This world is false. This world is full of misery. This world is entangling. Even the good things in this world will lead to suffering. And through philosophy, they develop a mood of detachment and of the observer. Why should I do that thing? Why should I engage in that thing which is inferior? And then those who are doing karma yoga, they try to control the mind and the senses uh, by giving. They work hard, then they give up the, the fruit, karma palatyaga. They work for money, give it away. They work for facility, give it away, give it away. If you're constantly giving away the fruits of your work, you become detached from trying to enjoy the world. But all of those are shaky. I'm sure we've also all controlled our senses through philosophy. That cake must have 1,500 calories, which is probably two-thirds of my allotment for the day. Therefore, I will not eat it. Is that always effective? Is that always effective? No. And one can give and give and give, and eventually one may say, hey, I've been giving for a long time. It's high time that I took something. So these are not necessarily effective. They may be after some time. But because the Supreme is the all-attractive, one gets a higher taste. What does Krishna say in the 10th chapter of Bhagavad Gita? He says all of these beautiful, wondrous, splendid things, they're coming from just a little tiny spark of my splendor. Things in this world are definitely, unequivocally attractive. There are beautiful people in this world. Recently I was giving a class at a university in Johannesburg, and it appeared that all of the students in the room must be working for modeling agencies. Every single person in the room was strikingly attractive. I've just simply never seen so many attractive people in one, in one space. So there are attractive people, there are attractive animals, people are coming to take pictures of the peacocks and the swans, yes? Are they attractive? Correct? Swans are attractive, peacocks are attractive. 
We can even be attracted to some little bug. You see, the little bug has some, you know, iridescent colors walking along, and you can be fascinated by it. You see, especially little children, it's fascinating by a little bug. A plant can be attractive. But if you take the most attractive things in this, in this world, most attractive things in the whole universe, and you put them all together, they're just a little spark, a little tiny, tiny, tiny bit of the attractiveness of the Lord, of the attractiveness of the all-attractive Krishna. And he is all-attractive because he has these opulences in full, and in full means dynamically. So much full that they're overflowing, that he can give them in full to innumerable beings, and he still has them in full. Not like uh, some, someone in this world whose opulence is finite, even those beautiful students will not be beautiful, most likely, when they are in their 80s. They're, they're, it's a finite resource. Eventually, you know, even Bill Gates' money will be depleted. It's not, it's not eternal. But with Krishna, it's unlimited. And there's no inebriety. Materially, when you have full opulences, or a lot of opulences, there tends to be an inebriety to it. There tends to be some downside. Which is why so many spiritual teachers say, take the middle road, take the path of balance, Krishna says it's also in the Bible. Don't eat too much, don't eat too little, don't sleep too much. Have it in the middle. Like Chanakya Pandit says, if you're in total poverty, then that's a great disqualification, materially speaking, if you have no opulences. But if you have too many opulences, that's also a disqualification, isn't it? People work to become famous, but when they become super famous... They find it to be a burden. When they leave the house, they wear some disguise. Yes? They find it a burden. If you have no money, it's difficult. But if you have lots of money, it also becomes a burden. You're not sure. Are people my friends for me or for my money? How do I spend it nicely? I met one devotee who got a very large inheritance, didn't quite know what to do with it, and ended up losing all of it. And when she got a large inheritance again, she said, I don't don't even want to manage it. I just want to give it to someone else to manage. She said, it's just a burden. How how do I spend this nicely? How do we work working on writing about Varna and I was looking at some of the books on economics and one of them was saying like that you know if you have a lot of wealth it becomes a burden I don't want to just spend it frivolously I was just visiting some devotees and one family member came in and said I just got paid I have $400 in the bank what can I spend it on she was feeling that it was a burden that she needed to get rid of it Yes, we found this was true with, um, oh, what's his name? The one who, who captured um, Aniruddha. What was his name? Banasur. So Lord Shiva gave him a thousand arms. And he says, this has now become a problem for me. I have so, I have so much strength, I have so much virya, I have so much strength that I can destroy a mountain 
I can go to a mountain and tear it to pieces. And I'm so strong, nobody wants to fight with me, and I don't even get any pleasure fighting with anybody else. If, if you have a lot of opulence, it's no pleasure dealing with somebody who's vastly inferior to you, isn't it? The Ksatriyas, they only wanted to fight with somebody who was their equal. That's no fun, I mean, unless you're a bully, I suppose. It's no fun beating up somebody who's just inferior. You don't get any sense of, of ego. You, know, you have to defeat somebody who's your equal or better. Yes, I've defeated someone who's my equal or better. So this Bhanasuri said, there's nobody who's my equal. It's a burden. And Lord Shiva said, you're a fool. He said, I'll send you somebody who's your equal or better. And then you'll lose your opulence. And he says, yes! <laughs> why, why is he rejoicing that he's going to lose his opulence? Because it's a burden. Uh, too much knowledge. You know too many things. Well, what should I do? I can do a thousand things, ten thousand things. What do I start at? And you do nothing. Or people are envious. Did you notice that in school, that the kids who answer the question, the other kids are envious of them? Why do you think you are some kind of smarty? Even the teacher may give you a hard time. Which I always thought very interesting. Why, why does the teacher give a hard time to the smart kids? But they do. You know, when I was assistant principal in a, in a public school, there was this one kid who was like that, and the, the teacher complained. She said, I keep telling him I'm the one with the degree. You be quiet. And, and too much renunciation. If you're too renounced, then it's hard to have any relationships. It's hard to have any emotions. I've met people like this. They're so detached. I've met some devotees like this, actually. They're so detached. They're so equal poised that they have trouble feeling anything emotionally. They have trouble caring about anyone or anything. So on the material level, when you have too much of any of these opulences, it's a problem. And then also you're always worried about losing them. Isn't it? My mother used to like to sing this song from Porgy and Best that it's nice to have nothing because then I'm not worried about losing it. The people who have something, they're always locking their doors and worrying that somebody will take it when they're out getting more. And as soon as you have a lot of opulence, then you're full of anxiety. Isn't it? Especially fame, I think. And especially now, with the internet. If you have a lot of fame, you can lose your fame in about, you know, a billionth of a second. You work so hard your whole life to become famous. And in a billionth of a second, you become infamous. You have great beauty, and all you need is, you know, some disease or some car accident or just time. And it's, it's gone. Wealth, you know, especially people's wealth now is just digits on a screen. I, I met one devotee in 2008. He said, lost half my wealth. It wasn't that his cows died or his house burned down or something like that. It, it was all numbers. So one is an anxiety. Of course, among the six opulences, uh, renunciation causes the least anxiety. Renunciation is a very interesting opulence because that's the one opulence that no external force can take away from you. Isn't it? 
Some external force can take your beauty, your wealth, your fame, your knowledge, your strength. Uh, but renunciation is an opulence uh, that some external force like time or uh, war or the government cannot take away. And renunciation also makes all the other opulences beautiful. If you have the other opulences but you're attached to them, you're proud of them, then that's not so attractive, isn't it? Yes, I am the most beautiful. It's like, <laughs> You know, without some humility, without some renunciation, the opulences are not attractive. So to be the all-attractive, this uh, supreme opulence of renunciation. But with Krishna, there's no downside. There's no downside to Krishna's being full with opulences. So why is that? I mean, we can't say. It's a fact that there are people who desire not exactly the Lord, but they desire the Lord and His opulences. In fact, this is described in Manashikshara, uh, verse 4. They give up Rati for Lakshmi Pati, don't have affection for the Lord of Lakshmi. And Bhakti Vinod explains that those who go to Vaikuntha, they love the Lord, certainly, but they're also attached to the Lord's opulences. It's not exactly the same like prema of, of Raja. And we gave the example when teaching Manashiksha that people will say, well, I like having wealthy friends because then when they go on their yacht, I also get to go. So this is the mood of the residents of Vaikuntha. They like enjoying the Lord's opulences with the Lord. But uh, they are loving. They don't want to exploit them. Now, the demigods in this world sometimes do want to exploit the Lord's opulences. They want to take the Lord's power to exploit them. And they worship the Lord in order to use his opulences. And we see this phenomena even on this earth. In every single religious institution, ours uh, is not an exception. That people come to take shelter of the Lord so that they can be empowered with one of his opulences and then use those opulences for their own purposes. They may not have thought that way initially, but they become overwhelmed by that opulence and they end up becoming uh, off the track. Yes, have we seen this in our own movement also? Somebody, by worshipping the Lord, they become famous, they become full of knowledge, they become full of potency, uh, they become full of wealth, and so forth. And then they forget. Ah, oh, this was a loan from the Lord for his service, and they start using it for their own uh, enjoyment separate from the Lord. But so why is this not a problem for the Lord? It's a problem for us. If we have money and somebody loves us for our money or somebody loves us for our beauty and not for us, that's a problem for us, but it's not for the Lord. Because he's also full in this renunciation. Therefore, it's not a problem for him. Because he's complete in detachment. His mood is, you know, you want to try to exploit me? Fine. Here's a world of illusion. Try to exploit me there. Let me know when you're ready to have a loving relationship. Because he's Purna. He's detached and he's Purna. So he remains unaffected by people's interest in exploiting him. It doesn't, it doesn't affect him. And he's full of unlimited devotees who have no such desires. That's one of the four opulences of Krishna above Narayana that he has these loving devotees who have no desire to enjoy his opulences whatsoever. They love him only for him. 
the residents of Vrindavan, they're not there for the Chintamani dust and the Kalpavriksha trees. They just love the Lord. And they love the Lord, they, they practically don't even know that he's the Lord. I mean, in some. The gopis say, we know you're not really the son of Mother Yasoda, we know you're really the indwelling witness in everyone's heart. Just not that they don't know, but it's somewhere in the background. It's not the reason they're there, they're not there. The residents of Vrindavan don't need this purport to text 24. It's not necessary for them. They don't really care. If you went to one of them and said, oh, I could give you some verses to show that Shiva is supreme, they'd say, I don't care. Let Shiva be supreme. I could show you the person you're loving is actually God. So what? I mean, this happened even with Jagannath Mishra, right? He was rebuking Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He said very severely, sometimes when you're a parent, you have to, you can't always just be, Please don't hit your brother with your toy. It's not nice. Sometimes you have to be heavy. Well, I was visiting my son recently, and the, they have two boys and a girl, and all, all little children, and the boys were, um, they had Nerf guns, which are pretty harmless, but if it's at close range, it, it can hurt. So the rule was they had to play with them outside wearing goggles, so they pulled them out inside. And I immediately said to them, go outside, go outside. But they didn't, and they shot one of them at their little baby sister who started to cry. So both the mother and the father were screaming at their children. Why are you hurting your sister? Take your birth gun outside. If you ever play it inside again, you'll never see it again. You know, that's required sometimes. So Jagannath Mishra was, I don't know what Mahaprabhu did, what Nimai did, but he was, he was really rebuking his son. And then he had a dream where this Brahmana comes and says, what are you doing? Your son is, is Narayana. You can't yell at him. You can't tell him he's done something wrong. And Jagannath Mishra responded, I don't care who he is, he can be Narayana, I'm his father, I have to tell him what to do. <laughs> it's my job. <laughs> so the residents of Vrindavan, Krishna is surrounded by these personalities who love him for him. They don't love him because he's the most beautiful and he's the most strong and he's the most wealthy and he's the most renowned. And they just love him because they love him. Even in this world, which one, what is love? When you love someone, you love them because you love them. Why do you love them? It's very hard to explain, isn't it? Right? I'm assuming all of us have loved someone in our life. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> you don't really know why do you love them. And, and we see, you know, romantic love. People will fall in love with some grossly unsuitable person. Which is why originally they were arranged marriages. Of course, then they started arranging with unsuitable persons. Hard. But people will do that just, I'm in love. But, 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 but I'm in love. <laughs> so therefore, Krishna is not, there's no inebriety, there's no downside of his opulences. So we have a very important decision to make, and it's an important decision that we really are making moment to moment on a, on a general basis, but also on a moment to moment basis. How are we going to deal with the Lord and his opulences? So putting aside the Vaikuntha Vrindavan 
discussion for a moment. As this is about Lord Narayana, we'll focus in that way, uh, except we'll focus instead of Narayana on Lord Ramachandra. So there we have two persons who dealt with the Lord's opulences, especially as personified by Lakshmi. That's here in the word for word, the husband of the goddess of opulence. Lakshmi, or the Lord's consort, is the personification of all the uh, Aishvayas. Sometimes she's called Sri, and one might think that therefore Lakshmi is only Sri, but she's actually all of them. So one personality wanted to take Sita, wanted to take Lakshmi away from Ram for his own purposes. And another personality wanted to take Sita and give Sita to them. So this is really the main question of us in our lives. Am I trying to take the Lord's opulences and use them for my own purposes? Or am I trying in that way to become happy? Or am I trying to become happy by using the Lord's opulences in His service? This is really our question. All of us have some opulences, yes? Correct? Uh, Nobody here is ugly. Some people here are extraordinarily beautiful. I assume all of us have at least a dollar or two. Uh, We have some, some wealth. Or if we don't have cash, then I'm sure we have shoes and clothes and something. Some kind of wealth. We have some kind of strength. We're all sitting. That involves some kind of strength. If we're able to walk, some kind of potency. We have some degree of renunciation. We have some degree of fame. Somebody knows us. We have some kind of knowledge. And these are all gifts of the Lord. We know their gifts because they can be taken away. Krishna can even take away our renunciation, by the way. He can give us some temptation that we would not be able to be renounced in the presence of. So because he can take them away, they belong to him. How are we using them? Are we using them for our own pleasure, trying to be separate, or are we using them in his service to bring his pleasure and finding our pleasure in that way. And this is another beauty of bhakti yoga. We mentioned the beginning beauty of bhakti yoga, that our detachment from the world is because of attachment to Krishna, not some mechanical process. And another beauty of bhakti yoga is that we can use all the opulences, both material and spiritual, in service. We can find pleasure in opulence. We are not asked to give up finding pleasure in opulence but we find pleasure in opulence by using it for the service of the Lord as a servant and not as it being ours. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions, corrections, chastisements? Yes. I think you're supposed to have the mic. Thank you. Good bone structure and having good skin, it's a kind of 
beauty that sort of radiates. It's a radiant beauty. And this is why when we're, you know, uh, calling our saintly people like, you know, Shula Prabhupada, Shula Prabhupada, mm. um, and it, it, this person is endowed with Sri without saying something about, about the structure of their, their face. Mm. That is something spiritual, though, isn't it? That's not a material well, so Sri, so the the physical beauty is Sundarya, That's 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 physical beauty. Sri is a kind of it's a kind of a generous opulence. It's, mm. it's a kind of radiance that comes from generosity and, and knowing how to share and uh, utilize resources. I guess I would call that a kind of renunciation. Mm. That it's it's something that it comes from giving and renunciation. But I was thinking in a material sense, that in a material sense, I was thinking more in terms of physical beauty, that physical beauty is a very uh, thicker. Yeah. But that, that's a very good point. I mean, even on a material level, people who are not physically beautiful, but who are very kind, loving people, we tend to see as more physically beautiful. If you, once you get to know them. So right. I think we all experience this, that people whose bodily structure may not be so attractive, if they're very kind people, we tend to see them as more physically attractive than they are. And right. if they're not kind people, we tend to see them as less physically attractive than they are. So there, there is something to physical beauty that has to do with the mental beauty also. Yes. 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 I was just going to ask you, Oh, well, since we were just talking about beauty, then I'll just talk about that also because we're running out of time. So, when we met with Srila Prabhupada in 1974 in Chicago, when we met with him in his, his room, so it was uh, my father, my husband, myself, and they were also, uh, I know Brahmananda was there, maybe another six, six to ten other devotees. So Srila Prabhupada was sitting on a cushion, and it was a, a a sitting posture that he would often have where he had one leg up and he was leaning back. Right? He often liked to sit like that. You see many photographs like that. And, and Prabhupada's dhoti was up around his knee so you could see his right calf and, and foot and you could see his, his left foot. And I was, I was very much struck by how, I mean, on, a, on an external level, he was in his 70s, and generally, once you get to be old, your skin is not quite so nice anymore. Uh, but his skin looked like a baby's skin. It was just his, his feet were really beautiful. They were, they were kind of extraordinarily beautiful. I remember while we were there, I was, I was uh, struck by, by the beauty of his feet. And there's a lot more to that, to that time is real problem. But as time is short, I just tell that a little little piece of it. So when I, um, when I think about Srila Prabhupada, I often like to think about that mental picture that I have. And Prabhupada's mood was also. Uh, Prabhupada's, I mean, all you can say Prabhupada's mood is always beautiful. Uh, but in that particular mood, he was, he was very... Um, 
his compassion and his friendliness and his connection were were so apparent and so tangible that although apparently nothing of tremendous universal import was discussed in that meeting, although Prabhupada said some very profound things, when we left, my father looked at me and said, I know now why you've come. This is genuinely a holy man. I never asked him, but I was wondering what specifically in this half an hour meeting gave you that conclusion. And I've often wondered if it was Prabhupada's very authentic and, and loving, immediate, very authentic and loving deal. So maybe sometime I'll tell more details as it's 8.58. Yes, my father asked Prabhupada many questions. Actually, every time, the only time I was with Srila Prabhupada without my father was when Prabhupada gave me the Gayatri Mantra. Every other time that I was with Srila Prabhupada, I was there with my father. And I had told my father, you're supposed to ask questions of a saintly person. So he always asked questions. Can you share one of those questions? Well, okay, from that one meeting. Um, which one should I share? You want prasadam, religion, or family? Pick. <laughs> uh, family. Family, okay. So my father seemed to have some hesitancy about coming to the temple not for the purposes of worshiping Krishna. Again, I never asked him why he felt that way. But he said to Srila Prabhupada, I'm not coming here to see Krishna. I'm coming here to see my daughter and son-in-law. Is that acceptable? I'm not not coming here for a spiritual reason. And Prabhupada said, yes. And again, just how Prabhupada was sitting in his mood, he was so uh, warm and and loving in in his demeanor. That very casual... And he was speaking to us as if he'd known us forever and we were all his intimates. Does that make sense? Do you understand the mood of that? Just is a super open mood, very informal. Prabhupada said, yes. He said, they are loving Krishna. And I was sitting there thinking, I don't love Krishna. <laughs> And he paused. He said, chanting and dancing are symptoms of loving Krishna. So they are loving Krishna and you are loving them. So two things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. (laughs) Whenever whenever I say that in foreign countries, people have a hard time translating that mathematical bit. Sometimes they're going on like for five minutes with it. I'm saying, you're not getting it. Can you repeat it again? He said, they, they are loving Krishna. Chanting and dancing are symptoms of loving Krishna. So they are loving Krishna, and you are loving them. So two things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. This morning, the lecture I was listening to, Prabhupada was using chemistry to explain Krishna consciousness. He was going on and on about mercury and sulfide. And Yeah, I've never studied chemistry. I don't remember the other. And, and he was saying, and Rupa Goswami also gives examples of chemistry. He said, so Rupa Goswami clearly knew chemistry. 
So Prabhupada was giving a mathematical axiom. It's an axiom. Did I get the right word? Okay. Two things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. And that statement from Srila Prabhupada is very useful, especially in our dealings with non-devotees. Get the non-devotee to like you. Be a likable person. For people like me, that's a big challenge. But, you know, be a likable person. I mean, and when I first came to Krishna consciousness, my way of trying to get other people to become Krishna consciousness, to become Krishna conscious, was not by being a likable person. It was by being a flaming, you know, incorrigible fanatic. You want to be with me? Well, don't talk about anything else but Krishna. And why are you meeting me? You're a demon. That doesn't really help people like you. You know? Does it? It's not... I mean, how many people do this? Not just in the Hare Krishna movement, in every religion, you know? You get scared of the people who just got religion. I even saw this phenomenon in someone who just ungot religion. Someone who just, you know, left Krishna consciousness. It's all an evil cult. I mean, it's like he's a flaming, fanatic unbeliever. <laughs> so, you know, you take up something new and you're like, I, I, I've got to beat everybody with it. But Prabhupada's principle, if you love Krishna they love you, then they're loving Krishna. So get them to love you. And that, that would be nice with the other devotees too. We could give it a try. You know, often when we, when we want to convince somebody of something, we put on our most obnoxious hat. Yes? Do we do this? I am now going to convince you of something. Where's my most obnoxious hat? <laughs> All right. I am right, and you're wrong. And if you don't agree with me, you are a flaming idiot. And we think that way they're going to agree with us. I mean, maybe sometimes it works. And one of the funniest things in our last election was Jeb Bush saying to Donald Trump, you know, you're not going to insult your way to the presidency. He did, actually. <laughs> so, you know, maybe for some people it works, but I think as a general principle, a general principle, if you want, some, if you want to be the agent to get someone to love Krishna, then you love Krishna. First of all, you've got to love Krishna. It can't be a theoretical construct. I'm Krishna conscious because it has the best philosophy. Actually, I have to have some affection for Krishna. And then be a lovable person. At least just be nice. At least just be nice. Shiva Ramaraj told me once, he said, the best compliment someone can give me is that I'm a decent human being. So someone should say, wow, you're really nice. How do you do it? It's because of this person. This all-attractive person who's attracted me. Really? So I've seen it as a, as a general principle, and uh, well, I'll end with this. In the seventh canto, Lord Nisimhadev says to Prahlad Maharaj, says, 21 generations of your family will be liberated. And Prabhupada writes in the purport, he says, this must mean more than one life. He says, because in every life, we only know up to maybe our great-grandparents. And I've asked thousands of people, do you know the names of your great-great-grandparents? Hardly anybody does. 
says, we only know up to our great-grandparents or your great-grandchildren, the children of your grandchildren. You don't usually know the grandchildren of your grandchildren. Maybe they're one year old when you die. You know, you don't really know them. Most people don't even live to see great-grandchildren. So Prabhupada said, this must have extended to several lives because we only have attachment within a few generations. Does that make sense? So why did these personalities, why did 21 generations become liberated when Prahlad got the mercy of the singer Dave? Because they were attached to him. So the people in that life, you know, both descendants and ancestors, who knew him, and had a relationship of attachment with him, they became liberated. And even more astonishing, the persons in his previous life who had a relationship of attachment to him, they became liberated, even if he was not a pure devotee in those previous lives. Once he became a pure devotee, those who had an attachment for him in previous lifetimes, up to 21 generations counting this life where you'd go maybe six in either direction, all became liberated. So because anybody might become, just think anybody that we're meeting might become a pure devotee six or seven lifetimes from now. And this is in the story of Dhruva Maharaj where Suruchi offends Dhruva before he becomes a devotee. And Prabhupada says, if you serve a devotee without knowledge, you get the result. And if you offend a devotee without knowledge, you don't know where you're going. So we should not offend anybody. And we should try to be such a nice person that people like us, and through liking us, they will come to like Krishna. The last thing my father said before he died, unfortunately, I I got there two hours after he passed. I heard the last thing he said before he died. He heard I was coming. And he said, she was always my favorite. And whenever I think of her, I think of Krishna. Yeah. So we'll probably cute. Yeah.